like to read to you for a couple of minutes, so bear with me if you will, and I read uh, actually parts of three pages or so of a, an article that was given to me a number of years ago uh, that off the web, which we can't, you know, it doesn't mean it's uh, uh, gospel, but this is good information. And just bear with me, this concerns, it, from a worldly point of view, or if say from societal point of view, has to do with careers, work, work-life balance, etc. But the article is entitled, Change or Die. That's an attention-getter. <laughs> Change or Die, written by a man named Alan Deutschman. So what if you were given that choice? For real. What if it weren't just a hyperbolic rhetoric that conflates corporate performance with life and death? Again, this is written from a corporate point of view and what's good for the employee world. This is not the overblown exhortations of a rabid boss or a slick motivational speaker or a self-dramatizing CEO. We're talking actual life or death now your own life or death? What if a well-informed, trusted authority figure said you had to make difficult and enduring changes in the way you think and act? And if you didn't, your time would end soon, a lot sooner than it had to. Could you change when change really mattered, when it mattered most? So I would ask us to think about that, would we? Yes, you say? Try again. Yes? You're probably deluding yourself. You wouldn't change. You don't believe it? You want odds? Here are the odds. The scientifically studied odds are 9 to 1. That's 9 to 1 against you. How do you like those odds? He goes on, this revelation unnerved many people in the audience. This was last November, from, written in 2007, at IBM's Global Innovation Outlook Conference. The company's top executives had invited the most far-sighted thinkers they knew from around the world to come together in New York and propose solutions to some really big problems. And they started with the crisis in health care. An industry that consumes an astonishing, and this, again, this is dated from uh, 12 years ago, an astonishing $1.8 trillion a year in the United States alone, or 15% of the gross domestic product. A dream team of experts took the stage, and you might have expected them to proclaim that breathtaking advances in science and technology, mapping the human genome and all that, held the long-awaited answers. That's not what they said. They said that the root cause of the health crisis had not changed for decades, and the medical establishment could not figure out what to do about it. And Dr. Raphael Levy, founder of the Global Medical Forum, an annual summit meeting of leaders from every constituency in the health system, told the audience, a relatively small percentage of the population consumes the vast amount of majority of the health care budget for diseases 
that are very well known by and large their behavioral. That is, they're sick because of how they choose to live their lives, not because of environmental or genetic factors beyond their control. He said, even as far back as when I was in medical school, and that was back at Harvard in 1955, many articles demonstrated that 80% of the health care budget was consumed by five behavioral issues. He did not bother to name them, but you don't need an MD to guess what he was talking about. Too much smoking, drinking, too much eating and stress, and not enough exercise. Then the knockout blow was delivered by a Dr. Edward Miller, the dean of the medical school and CEO of the hospital at Johns Hopkins University. He turned the discussion to patients who had heart disease, which is so severe that they undergo bypass surgery, a traumatic and expensive procedure that can cost more than $100,000 if complications arise. About 600,000 people have bypasses every year in the United States and 1.3 million heart patients have angioplasties, all at a total cost of around $30 billion. Procedures temporarily relieve chest pains, etc. Around half the time, the bypass grafts clog up in a few years, and the angioplasties even in a few months. And the causes of this so-called restenosis are complex. It's sometimes a reaction to the trauma of the surgery itself. But many patients could avoid the return of pain and the need to repeat the surgery, not to mention arrest the course of their disease before it kills them by switching to healthier lifestyles. Yet very few do. If you look at people after a coronary artery bypass grafting two years later, 90% of them have not changed their lifestyles, hence 9 to 1 in terms of odds. And that's been studied over and over and over again, and so we're missing some link here. Even though they know they have a very bad disease, and they know they should change their lifestyle, but for whatever reason, they can't. And the conventional wisdom, and I'll skip part of it, but the conventional wisdom says that crisis is a powerful motivator for change. But severe heart disease is among the most serious of personal crises, and it doesn't motivate at least not nearly enough. Nor does giving people their accurate analyses and factual information about situations. What works? Why, in general, is change so incredibly difficult for people? So that's talking about a very physical matter. But what it says there is that change is difficult. And perhaps some of this would apply to some of us in this room that have physical debilities that have been, we've been talked to about changes in our lives, and we find those even physical changes can be very difficult as we read here. But this is also true, and that's a long introduction for the point here, but that's also true spiritually. That fear alone is certainly not sufficient motivation to change spiritually, not on a long-term basis. So this afternoon, I'd like to review two key ways that God motivates us to change. Two key ways that God motivates us to change, and I will, I'll give you a title toward the end of the sermon, if you will. Now, there really should be very little suspense as to what those two points are. 
if we take the time to think about them. And we'll see that there are, these are, there are two great motivators. Let's turn back to Deuteronomy chapter 10. Deuteronomy chapter 10, a couple of verses here, verses 12 and 13. So the, if there's any mystery in your minds as to what those two motivators are, we'll set them aside very quickly here. Verse 12 of Deuteronomy chapter 10, it says, And now Israel... What does the eternal your God require of you but to fear the eternal your God, to walk in all his ways and to love him, to serve the eternal your God with all your heart, with all your soul? So God tells us there that we should love him. We should also fear him. In verse 13, and to keep the commandments of the eternal and his statutes, which I command you today for your good. Now, the word fear there, the Hebrew word, does mean fear. It can also mean to be afraid. It's a physical sensation. Now, it can also mean revere in terms of being reverent toward God in certain contexts. But in many contexts, in fact, most of the time where that word appears, it is referring to a physical fear. And the word love, the Hebrew word, does literally mean that. It means love for Others, love for God and emotion that uh, we have toward him. And we find that we just turn back a few pages to chapter 6. Deuteronomy chapter 6. Verse 1. It says, Now this is the commandment, and these are the statutes and judgments which the eternal your God has commanded to teach you and that you may observe them in the land that you are crossing over to possess. Verse 2, it says that you may fear the eternal your God to keep his statutes and his commandments which I command you and you and your son and your grandson all the days of your life, and that your days may be prolonged. Therefore, hear, O Israel, and be careful to observe it, that it may be well with you and that you may multiply greatly as the eternal God of your fathers has promised you, a land flowing with milk and honey. Hear, O Israel, the eternal our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the eternal your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. Again, God holds out this two-phased instruction of fearing him and also loving him. We would find the same thing over in Matthew chapter 22, where Christ is talking Let's turn over there to Matthew 22. Verses 36 through 38. And Christ is being asked here about the law. And he says, Teacher, in verse 36, which is the great commandment in the law? And Jesus answered to him, You shall love the eternal your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. The second is like, like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. So we are to love God. Serve him. Now, we're also told, it says here, to fear him. Let's, let's turn back for a moment to Deuteronomy chapter 13 this time. Because God tells us something here through... Instructions that were given to Moses 
chapter 13, verse 1. It says, If there arises among you a prophet or a dreamer of dreams, and he gives you a sign or a wonder, and the sign or the wonder comes to pass, of which he spoke to you, saying, Let us go after other gods. If he uses that as a uh, reason to follow his instructions, if he can actually foretell something and it happens, then therefore you should listen to me and let's go after other gods, which you have not known and let us serve them, you shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams, for the eternal your God is testing you to know whether you love him. Our fear and our love can be tested. Whether you love the eternal your God with all your heart and with all your soul, you shall walk after the eternal your God and fear him and keep his commandments and obey his voice. You shall serve him and hold fast to him. So we, again, we find this twofold instruction, the two key ways that God will use to deal with his people. I'd go back just for a moment to this article about change or die. When he is referring to this and wondering why people have so much difficulty in changing. And again, notice this is a physical matter that's being discussed here, but there's some crucial insight that is offered even by a man who is certainly not converted. It says, Cotter is hit on a crucial insight. Behavior change happens mostly by speaking to people's feelings. Look again at the case of heart patients. And there's a doctor named Dr. Dean Ornish. He's a professor of medicine at the University of California at San Francisco and founder of some studies and institute. Realizes the importance of going beyond the facts. Providing health information is important, but not always sufficient. He says we also need to bring in the psychological, emotional, and spiritual dimensions that are all so often Ignored. In 1993, he persuaded a, an insurance company, Mutual of Omaha, to pay for a trial. Researchers took 333 patients with severely clogged arteries, and they helped them quit smoking and also to change their diets, to modify their diets and their way of life and exercise. The patients attended twice weekly group support sessions. The program lasted for only a year. But after three years, the study found 77% of the patients had stuck with their lifestyle changes and safely avoided any further surgeries. They were eligible where they were eligible under the insurance. And the insurance company saved $30,000 per patient. Now, I'm not up here to offer any medical advice. That's not the purpose of my point here. But I simply want to draw and note a contrast between fear and the point that they're bringing out here that this study says you must address more than just the fear of dying even. He recasts the reasons for change. He says, so instead of trying to motivate them with the fear of dying, Dr. Ornish reframes the issue. He inspires a new vision of the joy of living, convincing them that, can, that they can feel better, not just live longer. That means enjoying the things that make daily life pleasurable without the pain caused by their disease. Joy is a more powerful motivator than fear, he says. So that, I would think, helped us understand. He, had, he could see 
that fear itself was not sufficient for creating enduring change, that there was something else missing. We know from Malachi chapter 3, and I won't turn there, but in verses 8 through 10, God talks about tithing. And he points out that not paying our tithes is robbing God. And then he encourages them by saying, look, if you will just test me, try me. And see if I will not pour out a great blessing upon you that more than you can imagine. He tells us back in Deuteronomy chapter 28, makes it very clear. Let's turn back there. We only read part of the, the chapter. Everyone knows this is the curses and blessings chapter, I would think, or most of us. But Deuteronomy chapter 28, in the first 14 verses of the chapter, He talks about the tremendous blessings that would be forthcoming if Israel would obey him. And I'll just skim through part of this. Verse 1, it says, Now I shall come to pass, if you diligently obey the voice of the eternal your God, to observe carefully all his commandments. And in verse 2, All these blessings shall come upon you. Blessed you will be in the city, and you will be blessed in the country. Blessed will be the fruit of your body, and the produce of your ground, and the increase of your herds. Even your kneading bowl, he characterizes, will be blessed. Then in verse 8, also your storehouses will have plenty. Then in verse 12, the Lord will bless you and give you good treasure out of his storehouse. The heavens will bring forth the rain in its season and bless all the work of your hand. And you shall lend to many nations and not borrow. So those first 14 verses enumerates everything that one could imagine physically that you would need. And then, of course, the remainder of the chapter, or a lot of it, is devoted to what would happen if Israel would not obey. Lots of curses would come their way, and all of the opposites of what he had just discussed as blessings would be coming upon them for the disobedience. So in verse 45, he says, Moreover, all these curses shall come upon you and pursue and overtake you until you are destroyed because you did not obey the voice of of the eternal your God, to keep his commandments and his statutes which he commanded you. In chapter 30, verse 17, chapter 30, verse 17, But if your heart turns away so that you do not fear, or hear, beg your pardon, and are drawn away and worship other gods and serve them, I announce you to you today, you shall surely perish. You shall not prolong your days in the land which you cross over the Jordan to go in and possess. I call heaven and earth as witnesses today against you that I have set before you life and death, blessing and cursing. Therefore, choose life. Verse 20, that you may love the eternal your God and that you may cling to him for he is your life. So that, the title of that article, Change or Die, it could, it just a brief summary of what God said to Israel in Deuteronomy. Obey me and you'll be blessed. Disobey me and you will die. What happened to Israel? They were afraid at various times. We can, uh, can note uh, a couple of examples perhaps in some of our recent lives. And the sermonette made reference that there are a number of people perhaps in the congregation here that have been here 30, 40, 50 years. 
for decades. And perhaps many of us can remember the book 1975 in Prophecy. Uh, I can remember that. Uh, first time I saw it, I was not in the church yet. <laughs> but it was a factor, and it was a motivator for many people who came to the Worldwide Church of God at that time. I know of individuals, I've talked to them, and seeing all the pictures of the earthquakes and the bombs going off and all the, 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 the people with dreaded diseases, the way it was characterized, it was scary. And there were people who thought in 1965 or whenever, late 60s, well, I don't want to be part of that. And so they wrote in, you know, I'd like to know more about this church. And, of course, it was, uh, that book was not intended to be prophetic in the gu- guarantee that this age was going to end by 1975, but it was to be characterized, was intended to say, this is what is going to happen sooner or later. Now, there were a lot of people who took that to heart by title. In other words, when it didn't happen by 1975, the fear abated, and not everyone stuck to their activities. Let's go over to the book of Acts, chapter 5. We can see that fear doesn't sway us for a long time. Acts chapter 5, and in verses 1 through 11, and just simply summarize the first part of it, but this is the account of Ananias and Sapphira, who conspired, husband and wife, they conspired with one another to make it look as if they were giving all of their possessions to the to the apostles so that it could be shared among those that were there from all around there that they needed things so and there were people giving everything they had in order to allow them to stay there longer and be taught and be instructed by the apostles and they conspired to make it look that way and of course that was not what they were doing they sold their their property their their belongings and they kept part of it back and when they presented themselves to Peter of course we know that they died. And so we read here with verse 10 and 11, and then referring to the wife who came second. And then immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. And the young men came in and found her dead and carrying her out, buried her by her husband. So she had come a little later and her husband had already died and was gone. And so in verse 11, it says, great fear came upon all the church and upon all, all those who heard these things. Well, sure. One could be easily intimidated by that and decide, well, we, won't, we don't want to lie about that. We don't want to do anything wrong because we might die. And yet, let's turn over to Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10. And remember, Paul is writing this particular epistle to to the Hebrews, to the predominantly Jewish Christians. 
that were in Jerusalem, in Judea. And it could be that many of the ones who would read this, maybe, maybe they were there when Ananias and Sapphira died. He writes here in verse 26, But if we sin willfully, after we have received the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a certain fearful expectation of judgment and fiery indignation which will devour the adversaries. Anyone who has rejected Moses' law dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. Of how much worse punishment do you suppose Will he be thought worthy who has trampled the Son of God underfoot and counted the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified a common thing and insulted the Spirit of grace? And then he concludes in verse 31, It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And again, the word fearful there does imply a physical fear to fall into the hands of God. And so he was reminding them of something that maybe some of them had actually witnessed. But years later, some of that physical fear perhaps had abated. And this simply points out that a physical fear is simply a starter for deciding to serve God and to make continuous changes in our lives. Over in Revelation 21... In Revelation 21, verse 8, just opens with this comment. But the cowardly, unbelieving, abominable, etc., and all liars on down shall have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Mentions cowardly, and again the word there in the old King James is fearful, and it literally means physical fear, pointing out that that kind of fear is inadequate for becoming like God and like Jesus Christ because that kind of fear would also often succumb to persecution, to physical threats, and one might give up this way of life, God's way of life, in order to save themselves physically, not realizing what might happen. Physical fear has to develop into a godly Fear, which involves not only a drive for survival, but also a reverence and an awe for who and what God is. Let's turn over to Second Corinthians chapter seven. Second Corinthians chapter seven. And here Paul is writing back to the Corinthians after he had written a very sobering 1 Corinthians to discuss the various problems that were extant in the church at that time, and there were many. I think if you were to enumerate all of them and go back to 1 Corinthians, you think there's about 12 or 13 major issues that Paul addresses. And he writes some very stern things in that particular epistle. And he points out here then in verses 7 through or 8 uh, through 11, 
It says, For even if I made you sorry with my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it. He was not sure that he maybe had been too... Uh, too authoritative or perhaps harsh, but then he realized they had changed. He said, but for I perceive that the same epistle made you sorry, though only for a while. Now I rejoice not that you were made sorry, but that you sorrow led to repentance. For you were made sorry in a godly manner that you might suffer loss from us in nothing. For godly sorrow produces repentance leading to salvation, not to be regretted, but the sorrow... And one might say even the fear of the world produces death. For observe this very thing that you sorrowed in a godly manner, and what diligence it produced in you, what clearing of yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what vehement desire, what zeal, what vindication. In all things you have proved yourselves to be clear in this matter. So they were reminded strongly by Paul that they needed to change. And they were willing to do that, willing to address that. So let's turn back in terms of trying to compare that. Let's turn back to Leviticus 19. And what we'll see here in having the right kind of fear produces certain actions. These are just some physical matters, which I found interesting to to note when I went preparing this. In Leviticus chapter 19, what are the kinds of things that we do when we fear God? Now, in general, we keep the Sabbath. We're here because we fear God. What are some other things? Notice verse 14. You shall not curse the deaf, nor put a stumbling block before the blind. Why? Because you will fear your God. I am the eternal. Now, most of us would not even think about that, I would hope, of playing some sort of sick joke on someone that has a debility. But God does point that out, that we are supposed to care for those individuals and have respect and not do anything to deliberately harm someone like that. What about verse 32? You shall rise before the gray-headed and honor the presence of an old man and fear your God. Some of us are a little older. It's obvious. There's less hair. And what we have is light colored. (laughs) But all of us have been young, and we have certain individuals that are, whatever age we are, we're going to find someone older, very likely than we are. And the Bible simply says we should honor those that have more years than we do. Uh, Not that I am the paragon of that, but I sometimes I address uh, someone that's slightly older than I am as Mr., and I get reminded (laughs) that that's not necessary, but that's born of a habit that I was taught when I was young and something the Bible teaches. Standing up, you know, if you're riding a bus, you're on a metro or a subway or whatever, it's crowded. Do we as respectful individuals give our seats to someone that maybe has a physical reason why they'd be more 
They shouldn't be standing up while they're older. God says that this kind of reverence and respect for him is manifested in how we treat other people. Do we think about our kindness to one another other than, yes, we know we're, we're to do that. The instructions are there. But we do that because we have this subconscious, hopefully, understanding that this is a way of demonstrating our proper fear of God, our awe of him, because he tells us how to do even small things. And we do these things, we inculcate those things into our lives because God says that's the way we should do them. Over in Leviticus 25, we find some examples of this as well. Leviticus 25. Verse 17, therefore you shall not oppress, or the margin says mistreat, you shall not oppress one another, but you shall fear your God, for I am the eternal your God. We are not to do that. The positive command is we are to love others as we love ourselves, but that Love for them is manifested, and we making sure we don't oppress them. Verse 36 points out here, verses 36 and 37. Take no usury or interest from him, but fear your God that your brother may live with you, that we're willing to help one another. You shall not lend him your money for usury, nor lend him your food at a profit. We don't take advantage of one another just because perhaps the situation might be desperate and the opportunity is there. We don't do that. Verse 39, if one of your brethren who dwells with, by you becomes poor and sells himself to you, you shall not compel him to serve as a slave. And the point then concludes in verse 43, you shall not rule over him with rigor, with severity. But you shall fear your God. Again, these physical guidance, pieces of guidance or instructions that God gives us that is a matter of a way of demonstrating that we, we fear God. There's an interesting verse back in Leviticus or Exodus chapter 20 where the commandments are given. Exodus 20. We'll pick it up in verse 18, Exodus 20, verse 18. So now all the people witnessed the thunderings, the lightning flashes, the sound of the trumpet, and the mountain smoking, and when the people saw it, they trembled and stood afar off. We we know they were somewhat terrified by the, the happenings there. And so they said to Moses, you speak with us. We will hear, we'll listen to you, but let not God speak with us lest we die. And so Moses said to the people, notice the, con, the, the irony here, I think irony. He says, do not fear. No, don't be afraid. You're not going to die. For God has come to test you. 
that his fear may be before you so that you may not sin. Now, he's saying don't be afraid, but you better be afraid. <laughs> two, two in context, two expressions of how we are to approach God. Now, there is nothing wrong, as we'll see, there's really nothing wrong with a certain amount of physical fear. Because God does say he, would, he will punish for disobedience. But the encouragement to stand in awe of him, to revere him, to understand who and what he is and how great he is as a motivator to change is much more effective, much more long-lasting. It will make a great difference. So we are to not fear God to this, in this sense of just being terrified, but we are to recognize his power and his might and stand in awe of him. Back in Job, chapter 1, Job chapter 1, we find the account where, the beginning of the account, where Job is going to go through some tremendous trials. We'll read here in chapter 1, begin reading in verse 8. It says, And the Eternal said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, one who fears God and shuns evil? And that, in context, if we know the whole story, he certainly does stand in awe of God, but he has something to learn to help that be deeper and more meaningful. He does fear God, and he shuns evil. And Satan answered and said, Well, does does Job fear God for nothing? Have you not made a hedge around him, around his household, and around all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands, and his possessions have increased in the land. Now stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he will surely curse you to your face. How much understanding do you think Satan had of Job? I don't think he understood Job at all. He thought if he could, if it was all one side of the only reason that Job was doing all of this was to get the blessings. Just a matter of a means to an end, and when all the blessings were to go away, he'd be a different man. And of course, we know that was not the case. Verse 22, though that that all happens, not only does he lose all of his possessions, he in verse 22 he says, "In all this, Job did not sin nor charge God with wrong." Satan had totally, completely misjudged Job's character. And, of course, in chapter 2, verse 3, we talk about, shows here that, that God said the same thing to Satan about him being obedient and fearing him. And in verse 5, Satan says, Stretch out your hand now and let's touch his bone and his flesh, and he will curse you. He'll curse you to your face. And, of course, God does allow Satan then to afflict him physically. Even 
his wife joins in and says, look, why don't you just curse God and die? And in verse 10, you speak, he talks to his wife, you speak as one of the foolish women. Shall we indeed accept good from God, and shall we not accept adversity? In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. Job certainly had a huge lesson to learn that would deepen his fear of God. But it wasn't just a physical fear that motivated Job. One could, we turn over to Psalm 66. And hopefully we can, in reading this particular verse, many of us could do this. And hopefully we do this in our private lives as we reflect on what God has done for us. And when it was all said and done, Job would certainly be able to do this. Verse 16, Psalm 66. Come and hear all you who fear God, and I will declare what he has done for my soul. We should be able to declare what God has done, and what he has done for us as well should be motivating us. It should be more than fear. Fear fear can push us toward God, and for many of us, again, based on what we read, what we heard in years past, it was the initial motivator that stirred us in our effort to come to God. Maybe it was some tragedy in our life, and then something we read in the Bible, and we looked at that, that kind of instruction and realized that we'd had enough problems, and we were afraid of having more of them. It can be a motivator, but once we establish this relationship with God, it must go way beyond that. Even as Paul talked about in Roman or Hebrews chapter 10, we have to then move on to become like Jesus Christ and like God our Father. We have to come to love God and use that kind of relationship in order to serve him. In Romans chapter 5, where, do, where does that kind of love how is it sourced? How do we receive it? Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5. Here in verse 5, Paul writes, This is now hope does not disappoint, because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit which was given to us that the kind of love that we can have to show our fear of God toward one another comes through the power of his Holy Spirit. That spirit, that gift is manifested in us, and that is the love of God being expressed, and the love of God being expressed even toward God and toward Jesus Christ and the things that we have done. And again, going back to the sermonette that Mr. Bauer talked about, the first point is giving thanks for how privileged we are to know what we know, how few people there are that have that true understanding. In Galatians chapter 5, he talks about the gifts of the Holy Spirit, and the first one's love. He also talks about joy. Over in Psalm 51, Psalm 51 in this psalm of repentance, written by David, 
after he had been corrected by Nathan, pointing out that he was the one who had committed egregious sins, heinous sins. And David was readily willing to hold accountable whoever the bad guy was, even to the point that he, who is it, and he'll die. And Nathan said, you're the man. And once David understood the depth of his guilt, David's corresponding repentance was equally deep, and God accepted it. He said, you won't die. Of course, there were other consequences. Maybe discuss, hope we discuss those another day. But we find here in verses, uh, verses 10 through 12, David writes, he says, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast, away from, cast me away from your presence, and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Verse 12, he says, Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and uphold me by your generous spirit. This relationship that God gives us through the love that he has shed in our lives, our minds, our hearts, but that's our, the core of our, our thoughts, even as were discussed last, uh, last week by Mr. Nathan in meditating and what is our deepmost and innermost thoughts, how do we, these things that should be in there have to get in there from study of God's word. And David is beseeching God to restore that joy, that love, that special relationship that he had had with God before. And obviously it had been missing for some time. So he's asking God to restore that joy of his salvation, that special relationship that he was to have with his father. So God's Holy Spirit motivates us and empowers us to change. It also tells us in the New Testament, he helps us want to change. That that relationship that he has with us, with his spirit, that we are encouraged to become like him. We even get this motivation from him that we cannot always, we don't generate that desire all by ourselves. Let's turn over to 1 John chapter 3. I always found it interesting that First John chapter three verse sixteen does have some parallel to John three sixteen. Period. Of course, the same same John was writing it. Of course, the same inspiration coming from God. First John three sixteen. By this we know love, because He has laid down His life for us, and we also ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. So this love that God puts in our hearts and our minds toward him, again, is to be manifested in how we serve one another. That's the ultimate gift that he gives to us is his spirit. He gives us this seed of eternal life. And during this physical life that remains, we are to use that to qualify for that eternal life. He tells us then later in that same book, chapter 5, 
after he tells us we should be living our lives not only in service to God, but in service to each other. He points out here in verses 2 and 3 of chapter 5, reiterates this point. By this we know that we love the children of God. How do we know that? When we love God and we keep his commandments, being obedient to God's law, again, is a manifestation that we love him. And this is the love of God that we keep his commandments. And his commandments, of course, are not burdensome. They are a way of life that produces the joy, that produces the happiness that all of us truly seek. We don't under human mind does not understand how to achieve that on its own. And so God gives us his spirit to help us have a deep understanding of what it means to be happy. How do we become happy? And happiness is actually provided by all the things that God tells us we should do. And when we do, in fact, treat one another with respect, when we serve one another in need, that there is simply a peace of mind, there is a quietness of the spirit that God provides through his spirit. And there are few things more satisfying than doing something for someone who is in need. We enjoy those things because God has given us that understanding. And then the ultimate gift that God is going to offer to us when we have this right motivation of loving him. Let's turn back to James chapter 2. James chapter 2. Verse 5, he says, Listen, my beloved brethren, has God not chosen the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? So God holds out this reward to us. Now, for Israel, he said, I'll give you all kinds of physical blessings. And he does promise the very same things to us today. He tells us he will take care of us, provide for us. He'll be our healer. He'll watch over us. He says even our children are sanctified because even one parent is obeying him and serving him. He'll give us all kinds of physical blessings. But the biggest motivation or motivator he can offer to us, if you will, besides all of these special things in this life, he says, if we love him, which is manifested when we obey him, he will give us eternal life in his kingdom. Now, the issue is, or the problem with that is, some of us can't see that far. Right now, we're still flesh and blood. And we are much affected by the physical things that sometimes confront us, sometimes seemingly surround us. And we think that sometimes our problems are almost insoluble. Faith notwithstanding, this just seems insurmountable perhaps. But God also says he will solve those problems in this life even. And beyond that, he will give us eternal life. And we have to ask him for the vision that will help us keep that in our minds because that is the motivator, the motivator that makes us different physically we might have certain fears 
Now, I don't think there's anything necessarily wrong with some fear of the power of God to bring about a second death or to bring curses in this life. But what should motivate us more is to have God's respect for us, his love for us, to care for us, and to, as he did with Job, looking down and say, this man obeys me. And he knows that what we're doing is because he does care for us, and we show him we care for him and love him as well. In Romans chapter 6, we have Paul's brief summary of what it says back in Deuteronomy. In Romans chapter 6, verse 23, these two factors of being motivated are pointed out very briefly. It says, the wages of sin is death. So, yes, we are to be aware of and maybe intimidated by eternal death. We do not want to die. And certainly we don't want to die forever. We don't want to be buried and never be resurrected. And then we realize that God is offering us a very special gift, the latter part of the verse. But the gift, the free gift, the margin says, because we can't earn it no matter how obedient we are, how many good things we do, that those are not sufficient in order to make God obligated to give us eternal life. Eternal life is a gift. He said the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Christ is the one who made it possible for God to give us that eternal life. He tells us in Romans chapter 8, and I won't turn to all of that right now, but he tells us nothing can separate us from his, his love. There is nothing physical in this life that can separate us from God's love as long as we are serving him and trying to obey him. How far can we see? We don't, every, uh, we're limited in our vision, and even in our lives, we're distracted by physical things. And later in the year, as we know, every year we go to the Feast of Tabernacles. And what God is trying to do through his holy days, and especially with the Feast of Tabernacles and uh, going into his kingdom, and, uh, being resurrected on the day pictured in trumpets, that he wants us to see all the way to tomorrow. Tomorrow never really comes, does it, physically? doesn't seem it's always there. But he wants us to see all the way to his kingdom and use that vision, use that insight, use that expectation to discipline ourselves with his spirit in order to make it into his family and share something very, very special. And how special is it going to be? Well, we don't know all of it, but let's turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 2, First Corinthians chapter 2, we'll read verses 9 and 10. Verse 9, as it is written, I has not seen nor ear heard nor have entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love him. 
But God has revealed them to us through his Spirit. For the Spirit searches all things, yes, the deep things of God. We can read, and I would recommend, at least on occasion, reading our book about the ultimate destiny, what God is offering to us, and for which we can be very thankful to know that we have an opportunity to gain eternal life. That is our ultimate destiny, to be part of the God family and to share in the rulership and development of the entire universe. Now, Paul does say also later in Corinthians that uh, we still look through a glass darkly. (laughs) We can't see everything God is offering to us. He does tell us that his right hand are pleasures forevermore. There's joy. There's happiness. And how, how one can imagine to think about being happy all the time. I'm not happy all the time. I hope you don't want any details. You could talk to my wife, but, you know, do we get moody? Do we want sometimes let physical things distress us to the point that we just, uh, we're not happy? We need someone to cheer us up. We need someone to pat us on the back and say it'll be okay, whatever's going on. Sometimes we can see it on one another's face. It's not a good day. It's more than a bad hair day. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's not a good day. And someone comes up and, uh, and finds a way to say something nice and pick us up. It's hard to imagine being happy all the time. To have no physical pain, no yearning for something that we don't have, because we have, have everything. We'll be part of the ownership. We'll have title to the whole universe. You know, our names will be on that deed. <laughs> that we will be part of that family that rules everything that God is going to give us. He says that we can see some of that through the power of His Holy Spirit, and we can read the book. And I would again recommend it on occasion because there's so much in it. Mr. Weston wrote on John 3:16. There's a whole lot of information up front. It finally gets around to the understanding of just what that scripture is talking about and what God has offered to us out of his love, how he demonstrated that to us by giving his son, and then the result being he's going to give us his spirit, which is going to be a portion of his love manifested in us. We have to look forward to that time, and we have to try to have that vision. I want to just note here what it says here, it's, it's, uh, as it is written. Because if your margin shows it, I would like to turn back there and read what it says here in Isaiah chapter 64. Because the margin notes that it was written elsewhere. And it's stated a bit differently back in Isaiah. But Isaiah 64, first one is verse 4. Isaiah 64, verse 4. For since the beginning of the world, so from the time that there was anyone on this earth, men have not heard nor perceived by the ear nor has seen the eye seen any God besides you. There is no other God to see besides the one true God. But he pointed out here that man just never perceived this. 
And who acts, first, the last part of the verse, who acts for the one who waits for him. We're waiting for God. No one else can see what you and I see. No one else in the world without God's Spirit can see the things and understand the things you and I have been given. And if there's anything for which we should be grateful, that leads the bunch. We have special understanding because we are waiting for God. And since man has been on this earth, there are very few of us have been selected to have that privilege and know the things we know. And then in chapter 65... It's also pointed out here in verses 17 and 18. What you and I should use in order to be motivated. God uses fear and love. And the love that he uses helps us understand the goal of his plan in the first place. He says, Behold, in verse 17, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former shall not be remembered or come to mind. That tells me we're not going to spend a lot of time thinking about what used to be, because the good old times were not good. (laughs) The good times start when we're resurrected. The really wonderful times start when you and I become part of the family of God, and we're not going to spend it. Much time thinking about all the trials we had in the flesh. He says, but in verse 18, but be glad and rejoice forever in what I create. We're still looking through a glass darkly somewhat, but he tells us that there there are special things being created in the new heavens and the new earth. Be glad and rejoice, and behold... I create Jerusalem as a rejoicing and her people a joy. We have the motivator of God's love telling us he's going to give us eternal life. And yes, in this life we have to address a certain physical concern about our well-being that helps us avoid sin. We don't want any part of those consequences. We certainly don't want the consequence of death. But that physical fear has to evolve into something much deeper and much more special that helps us appreciate what God is offering to each one of of us. Even men have figured out that physical fear is insufficient for change. And as as the, the doctor made it, we have to go beyond that into spiritual matters. And so few people, and we're some of them, understand what those spiritual matters are that will give us the ability to change. So we need to ask God to give us his spirit of love and of the vision that that creates and understanding the reward that he's holding out to each and every one of us. 